from each of these drugs. Yep. So fentanyl at doses of two to four mics per mil, um, you get a reduction of roughly 31 to 72% in the MLAC. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, it is. Um, and importantly, that's a local epidural effect. So if you give the same dose of fentanyl systemically, you won't get the same reduction in MLAC, which is quite interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting study, isn't it? Because mm. I have heard people say that it might as well just give it an IV, because that's what it does. But no, yeah, that's not, not a very good thing. No. Okay. Good. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been a little while. Um, I'm joined again today by Siv, our educational fellow who's currently working with us at King Edward. How are um, you going, Siv? Yeah, well, thanks. Welcome back from the. <laughs> I, I, I feel like you can't say that because it's been such a long time. <laughs> uh, anyway, we're in the depths of uh, winter here in Perth and uh, Western Australia. Usually, it's well known for its good weather and uh, and um, high temperatures, but it's been. I think my wife had to scrape some ice off our car last week, which is yeah. one, probably one of the three times in, in the 20 years I've lived here that I've seen that. So, yeah, <laughs> it, it has been a bit cold. It has been in the depths of winter for sure. Um, so today uh, we're going. We thought we'd talk about a couple of things, just um, not really related, but just uh, um, will be of interest to hopefully to some people. Um, the first one was suggested by um, by Yusuf, so it was sort of to go over the. Um, or some of the basic principles regarding uh, local anaesthetics and how they work in epidurals. And so I think uh, you were going to talk to us about the min- was it the MLAC, the yeah, minimum local anaesthetic concentration. But yeah. then we've got to sort of try and describe. I think you were going to try and describe to me because I've forgotten all the stuff from the exams. It's all fresh in my head. Yeah, the pharmacology. Um, but then sort of link it to how we choose what we uh, what we do in real life and clinical application of. Yeah, of, of these drugs. Yeah. So it's really interesting stuff. I, I first, yeah, you know, went through this as a junior, and I found it quite interesting in explaining why we do what we do. Yep. Um, so MLAC, as you said, so it's a minimum local analgesic concentration. Um, it's determined via up and down, um, up and down method. Basically, what it is is it um, the is the median concentration of local anaesthetic that you need in an epidural to give. Um, effective pain relief yep. to a uh, pregnant lady in the first stage of labour. Um, okay. And the way they determine this is they get uh, 20 mils of local anaesthetic and then they give this to patient number one and yep. then if patient number one has a adequate pain relief and they define that as a score of less than 10 millimetres on a visual analogue scale. So like 1 out of 10. Exactly, yeah, yep. 1 out of 10. Then for the next patient, they'll reduce the concentration that they give them by 0.01%. And then if the next oh, that's not much. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very slow study. <laughs> yeah, keep going. <laughs> yeah. So that key, and then so let's say the patient has another good re- the patient has good relief from that, then they reduce by another 0.01% for the next patient. Let's say the third patient has a bad response or yep. has inadequate pain relief, then yep. they go up by 0.01%. And then in this way, if you do many, many patients, eventually you'll settle down on the median concentration. So at that concentration, 50% of patients will have adequate pain relief, 50% won't. Yep. And that's how you arrive at the MLAC. Okay. And now presumably most of these studies were done quite a long time ago now, weren't they? Yeah, or they were. A lot were. of the original ones. No, exactly right. And so that was before... We'll, we'll talk about additives and other things later on, but, um, but presumably um, also 
we don't need to leave 50% of women in pain. <laughs> so no. Bad luck, you use um, <laughs> Too bad, too sad. So presumably the study is only for a like, short period of time, then after that like, we sort of um, rescue every, everyone. Exactly, is yeah. That what happened? So regardless, if they had pain, they would give them a rescue dose of a high concentration of local anaesthetic and then get them comfortable. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So this is like the... So, so this dose-finding study is really sort of more relevant to the initial sort of... Um, initiation of the analgesia exactly. as opposed to obviously, obviously they probably have done some similar studies with the infusion part of or, or the intermittent boluses and things but this is where we're sort of comparing the effect, the different local anaesthetic drugs which I think you're going to go yeah. on to next this is just from this initial initial. yeah so it's the has gone in this is the first 20 mils of local anaesthetic okay yeah. you want to tell us about the differences between the different local anaesthetics yeah so yeah. I think the three of relevance really um, lignocaine ropivacaine and bupivacaine and yep. we'll mostly focus on ropivacaine and bupivacaine so I'll just quickly throw out some numbers. So as you said before, most of these studies are older and they're very heterogeneous. So um, there's a lot of difference in the stages, yep. as in where in the first stage they'll give the local, the different concentrations they'll use and um, so forth. But basically, um, s- some studies have found that the ropivacaine MLAC is between 013 to 0.15%. The yep. bupivacaine MLAC is between 0067 and 0.104%. Okay. And lastly, lignocaine is 0.35%. And the potency ratios for these um, is roughly 0.7 for ropivacaine, 1 for bupivacaine, and 6 for lignocaine. So that's the potency ratio roughly. Okay, so let's try and decipher what that yeah. means in real life. So so my, from what I've seen, you know, um, presumably these studies were done a while back, but what I've seen is that... <coughs> In real life, you know, certainly here at uh, King Edward, when we start off an epidural, our initial s- stuff we use is bupivacaine and we use 0.0125%. And then the infusions, it's 0.0625%. And you're saying the MLAC is 0.067 yeah, to 0.1. Yeah. So presumably if we're using 0.125, that's that's like we're shooting above the, exactly. the median dose. The median dose was only working on 50%. Exactly. So we're trying to get 95 to 99% yeah. comfortable, I presume. So that's why we go a bit higher. Yeah, and we'll so go... that works? Yeah, exactly. And we'll yeah. go into the, um, the the additive effect of other things later on. But yeah, exactly. That's okay. Yeah. And so uh, I, I haven't worked in a hospital that uses Rapivacaine, but I think they use 0.2% most of the time. Yeah. So that's also a similar principle. It's exactly. Sort of if, if you're saying that 0.13 to 0.15 was the MLAC. Yeah. Um, and uh, we won't talk much more about lignocaine from now on. Reason being is that um, it's not used much in epidurals because it can cause tachyphylaxis. So we'll just leave that there and talk okay. more about so that. So tachyphylaxis, just explain it to yeah. me in case people don't understand um, So tachyphylaxis is when you give the same dose but get a less and less of a pro- progressively less and less of a response. Okay, so presumably over, over the hours of a labour event, they become resistant to it and it yeah. stops working yeah. as well as it was before. Yeah. But that doesn't happen with the other longer acting stuff. No. Yeah. yeah, similar concept to opioids. Everyone's heard about how if you take more and more opioids, you, you know, you, if you sorry take opioids regularly, you need more and more to get the same effect. Yep, similar okay. sort of thing. Yep. Now, leave opipivacaine. I noticed you didn't mention that. that can we just assume that's pretty similar to opipivacaine? I th- I, 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 yeah, I don't want to say definitively, but I think you know, it just, it's just one of the enantiomers, so I think it would be similar. Okay. Yeah. I think it will. I think I read somewhere that because on the stuff you sent me that it is slightly different, but um, it's probably pretty close. I think so. Yep, okay. Yeah. Um, <coughs> 
So I guess MLAC changes, which is really interesting. So it's affected by maternal and labour factors. So, for example, they found that um, more obese patients have a lower MLAC and they postulated that this was because the epidural space was smaller. So perhaps um, it goes to to their spinal, the intrathecal space um, more effectively than um, non-obese patients. Um, progression through labour, so MLAC increases as we go through labour. So the figures we gave just before are for the first stage of labour. So yep. as you go into the second stage, your MLAC will increase. Um, okay. One study found that uh, the MLAC for uh, bupivacaine increases from 0.048 to 0.114% later. So there is some variability in this, and they think that this is because you get more recruitment of the larger A-delta nerve fibres as labour progresses. uh, labour progresses. And and is that just because the the pain that's transmitted from during the second stage, yeah, which is the vagina and and other other parts of the body, is different to the one the pain fibres that come from the uterus? Yeah, exactly. So as the fetal head moves down, you know, you get um, recruitments of different types of nerve fibres, and the dermatomes are different as well. So yeah. So so translating all that sort of um, talk, um, you know, and talk about MLAC and things. So basically, in the second stage, you the you, you might discover that you need to use a more concentrated or higher concentration of yeah. local anaesthetic to get to get pain relief. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we've talked about this before. So mm. a lot of us were taught um, if you have an epidural that doesn't work and you, sh- you think it's in the right space, you, know, you look at the back, you make sure it's not come out, then the best thing to do is to give a, a high-volume, low-concentration mixture um, early, early in the labour to try and get it to work. So for us, what that means is you give maybe twenty mils, up to twenty mils of zero point zero six two five percent bupivacaine, and then that. I should just uh, interrupt. Mm. We also have fentanyl in, the, in these mixtures as well, we just, yeah. which we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Keep going. Um, so earlier in labour, you want to cover dermatomes, and as we said, the MLAC is reasonably low, so you can cover that um, MLAC with just a low concentration solution, but a high volume to get the dermatomal spread. Okay. And then let's say that works. You get yep. called back a couple of hours later to that same patient. The analgesia is inadequate, so you look at their back epidural. Still looks like in the right. It's in the right spot. Yep. And what might have happened if the if there's enough volume is that now the labour's progressed. There's recruitment of those larger fibres. So now instead of needing high volume, low concentration, you need higher concentration solutions. Okay. Yep. And that's why here at our institution, our um, top up. Mixture prescription, the rescue dose is 0.125% okay. of with some fentanyl. Yeah. yeah. And so um, just pause for a second and we'll just um, reiterate what we what we have here. So so when we when we start the block, we use 0.125% uh, bupivacaine with fentanyl 5 mics per mil. And we have a 20 mil ampule and we give, you know, most, most people give sort of 10 to 15 mils. That sort of fits with what you were saying mm. in that, those earlier studies. And then during the, the infusions that we run of 0.0625% bupivacaine, which is half the strength, with, is it two and a half mics per millifenol? Yeah. So pretty much exactly half the strength. And then on the prescription for top-ups, like you're saying, it's back to that um, 0.125%. Yeah. Plus um, the fentanyl. Five plus the fentanyl, four yeah. mics per mil. Yeah. <coughs> and there was another point I was going to make up for that one. Um, okay yep that makes sense so keep going you might think of it as I'm talking yeah yeah Um, 
So we've talked about so far what an MLAC is, what the figures are for different um, local anaesthetics and how it changes during labour. So I guess the important thing is how does this apply to our patients? So various studies have been done on varipivacaine and bupivacaine looking at um, differences in analgesic quality, motor block, rates of instrumental delivery um, between these two drugs. And as I said before, the literature is quite heterogeneous, but um, they haven't really found any consistent difference between these two drugs. And they think that either one really seemed to be adequate. Um, There is some thought that possibly bupivacaine might be slightly better. The reason being is that the toxic dose for ropivacaine is 3 milligrams per kilogram, whereas bupivacaine is 2 milligrams per kilogram. So you can give more ropivacaine than bupivacaine. But the analgesic potency of ropivacaine is less than that of bupivacaine. And that outweighs the benefit of being able to give slightly more. So this yeah. is kind of a balancing act, but it seems to slightly favour bupivacaine. But overall, there's no real difference between the two. Yeah, and I, so I think um, I remember we talked about this years ago when I was um, more junior in my career that um, the, the the total doses of ropivacaine or bupivacaine that you're giving to someone for labour analgesia are all way below the toxic dose. Mm. And so even though ropivacaine theoretically is uh, less cardiotoxic and safer. Um, it wasn't really as relevant for labour analgesia. It gets different when you start talking about topping up someone for a caesarean section or surgery and that sort of thing. Obviously, the mm. toxicities are important. but um, So I think that's why we stuck with bupivacaine because mm. it was cheap and we were, we were already using it. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot to be said about familiarity as well. You know, if you're using it already and it works well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just um, to complete the picture as well, um, the toxic dose for lignocaine is 3 milligrams per kilogram by itself. If you give it with adrenaline, 7 milligrams per kilogram. Yep. Um, just something to keep in mind when you are topping up epidurals in labour birth suite. I'm often amazed at uh, how much has been given before I get there and you have to be sometimes a bit careful with how much you're giving because often the midwives have already tried, they've done their best and that's often involving a fair amount of local uh, anesthetic, so you have to just be mindful yeah. of that when you come down. So lignocaine is a lot safer than than either ropivacaine or bupivacaine, and mm. is probably a safe option. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, <coughs> so I guess overall, the summary of that is that there's no difference, real difference between ropivacaine and bupivacaine. You can use either one in, in your institution, just whatever yep. works best for you. Okay, that's good. Yeah. The last thing to talk about is the effect of additives. So yeah. as we touched on, um, we don't really see the local anaesthetics by themselves in solution. So as you said, Roger, here we have fentanyl, which is added to the bupivacaine. Um, and the beneficial effect of that is that it has a MLAC sparing effect. Um, yep. So I'll go through a few drugs and then um, I'll go through the MLAC sparing effect. And again, there's some, a range of figures because every study finds something slightly different. But yeah. the important thing is there is a significant reduction in the MLAC from each of these drugs. So fentanyl at doses of 2 to 4 mics per mil, um, you get a reduction of roughly 31 to 72% in the MLAC. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, it is. Um, And importantly, that's a local epidural effect. So if you give the same dose of fentanyl systemically, you won't get the same reduction in MLAC, which is quite interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting study, isn't it? Mm. Because I have heard people say that they might as well just give it an IV because that's what it does. But No, yeah, that's not a local thing. Okay, good. Um, other drugs, uh, dexmedetomidine and clonidine, they also cause a reduction in MLAC of about 50%. Um, yep. The doses of dexmed they use were about 0.4 to 0.6 mics per mil. Um, 
and lastly adrenaline which is in our um, top-up mixtures we use in theatre so we have um, lignocaine with adrenaline so yep. um, a dose of one in 300,000 of adrenaline has a MLAC sparing effect of 29%. So that so that's interesting, isn't it? So adding adrenaline to the local anaesthetics is for is for two reasons, isn't it? So mm. one one is it's you know it's a vasoconstrictor, so it decreases the sort of systemic absorption and helps with um, prolonging the block and decreasing toxicity. So you know lignocaine. If you just gave lignocaine by itself, it would probably wear off pretty quick. But because you give it with adrenaline, it hangs around a long time. Um, but also the adrenaline itself binds to probably to the alpha-2 receptors like the same as clonidine and dexmedetomidine so it's mm. also analgesic so it's sort of a two-for-one deal isn't it yeah it's nice I don't think anyone <coughs> was expecting to see that but um yeah well they, maybe they were I don't know but mm. but it's, it's interesting and um going a little bit off piste so um you know in Australia or on the southern hemisphere we have um lignocaine two percent with adrenaline um ampules that are made up and are pre-prepared so we just have to open the open the ampule and draw it up and give it but in um, uh, I know certainly in the UK I'm not sure about other parts of the world there was there, were, there was or has been in the historically concern about the um, the um, the preservative that's used I think it's sodium metabisulfite sulfite not sulfate um, that's used when you have adrenaline in the solution and they so they don't have these pre-prepared syringes. Mm-hmm. So if they want to use lignocaine with adrenaline, they have to like mix up the adrenaline with the lignocaine, and um, they have like little recipes, and it's a lot more complicated than this. I guess uh, theoretically, you can have uh, you know people could be unfamiliar with mixing them up. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, yeah, so that's an interesting note for those people who've worked in the UK or other other areas of the world um, that there's, there's a difference there. I think they're probably not as familiar. with and I think in a lot of institutions, talking, you know, we have a lot of trainees who come over from the UK and some consultants who work there that, um, yeah, they don't use lignocaine and adrenaline for topping up for caesareans as much mm. as we do here. They will often default to, I think, ripivacaine or pipivacaine or levopipivacaine. Yeah, I mean they all work. I think <coughs> from memory, mem- mem- you just get a you get a slightly quicker onset with lignocaine. Um, yeah, I think it's significantly more yeah. uh, quicker actually, but. There was a, some interesting studies which I haven't got in front of me, so I can't no, quote. I don't either. Um, but I think it is quite a bit quicker with lignocaine. Yeah. Five or ten minutes. This doesn't matter in a, in a non urgent situation, but no. sometimes when there's fetal distress and things, that's, yeah. that's five minutes is a, it's, it's is a, is a lifetime. It is. And it's, it's a difference between a GA and a not, you know, no. that's right. Yeah, yeah can, can be. Yep. Um, that was pretty good. I think that's, uh, I think we. Um, tied the pharmacology of that to the sort of clinical practice quite nicely. Yeah. We don't. Um, so, uh, uh, final comments here. We, I've, I've never had any experience with dexmedetomidine epidurally. I don't know if anyone uses it in Australia or, or Australasia or this part of the world. Um, we do have. Uh, we do use clonidine, and we have. Uh, I think Mike Pake, who was one of the previous professor who worked here, had, did some studies and used um, showing that clonidine as part of the infusion was very useful. Uh, and definitely decreased um, breakthrough pain. Um, we don't use it routinely though, because um, it can cause a bit of sedation and, uh, and, and the usual effects that you you will mm. find with um, alpha two agonists. Um, but we do have it as uh, an option for um, t- 
topping up epidurals that have got breakthrough pain, yeah, I think we often um, say give 70, 75 mics in 10 mils. Mm. Is that what's in the Hitchhiker's Guide? Yes. Yep. Yeah. And, um, and occasionally, I'll occasionally we'll add it to an infusion if um, someone's hypertensive or got, got um, mm. uh, an, an allergy, or not an allergy, but an intolerance to opioids. Occasionally we've added clonidine uh, to a sort of... Um, to um, Pivocaine and, and left out the fentanyl, and sometimes mm. I've had a few patients who have said they're allergic to fentanyl or have had like um, intractable itching and things in the past. Mm. And <coughs> it's not <coughs> academic either. I think the we all know, you know, we just talked about how the, there's an MLAC effect from MLAC reduction effect from fentanyl, yeah. but um, the beneficial effect of all those drugs being added to it is that you do reduce the amount of local you need, and in doing so, you reduce the amount of instrumental deliveries you might need. That's to right. Do. So they have less motor block. Yeah. Um, so if you can lower, and that's the whole background to why. So historically, um, we didn't even mention this, but historically, I'm told that when epidurals were first used for labour analgesia, they were using, you know, 0.5% really concentrated solutions, and women would often have very dense motor blocks, could could hardly move in bed, could hardly push, didn't even know they were in labour, and. Um, you know, over the years, um, lots of clever people did all these dose-finding studies and, and uh, tested all these adjuncts like um, fentanyl and clonidine and they came up with some really great regimens now, su- such now that, you know, we've f- sort of found a, a balance where most of the time they don't need top-ups and most of the time the epidurals work mm-hmm. really well, but they don't have anywhere near as much motor block. Yeah. Um, just need to point out as well, well we're not going to get into it but you know <coughs> the way you keep people um uh comfortable during labor is there's uh, lots of different ways of doing it you know intermittent top-ups by midwives infusions um which were uh, like the traditional way or now most pumps you know modern pumps um you've programmed intermittent boluses which i think is what most most modern institutions do mm. now yeah yeah all right that was good thanks yeah. Um, do you know the other day we had a drummer um, who had some twin girls in theatre and do you know what he named them? Right. And a one and a two. <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting 21 uh, minutes for that. <laughs> We've talked a lot about numbers um, on this podcast here today. Uh, what do you call a number that can't sit still? <laughs> a Roman numeral. A uh, Roman numeral. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty. That's bad jokish. All right, um, all right. We have got something else to dis- to discuss, but I feel like this is a good time to stop, and we'll yeah. um, and we'll make the n- the next thing another podcast. Okay, thanks, Siv. See you, see you again see in a few you. minutes. Yeah, see ya. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Oh, it's <laughs> only been it? ten seconds for Siv and I, but um, so we're going to do another qu- quite short podcast, but on, some, on another interesting topic. Mm. I found an interesting article. Um, which um, we're going to sort of dissect. Hopefully this one won't take very long. Um, so uh, so the background to the study, I thought, so this is a study that um, is looking at tranexamic acid and its role in obstetrics. Um, <coughs> I thought before we got into the, into the topic, so I thought I would sort of just go over briefly the sort of background or the history of tranexamic acid in obstetrics. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I should have written some of this down, but I... Uh, <clears throat> but basically, I can remember that that um, in 2010 was when Crash 2 came out, which was obviously tranexamic acid and uh, the treatment of um, uh, trauma patients. It was published in The Lancet, showing that um, there was a, a small decrease in mortality and there was a uh, and a decrease in um, 
death due to bleeding because of that. And so then this should have piqued a bit of interest in, I think, not just the, um, trauma, but all uh, all the other sort of um, disciplines in, in medicine where there where patients die from bleeding or have um, serious bleeding, including obstetrics. And so I think um, I can remember back then when we were we started, uh, a lot of us were started to um, give tranexamic acid during p- uh, postpartum hemorrhage, even though there hadn't been mm-hmm. a lot of study. There had been some really small studies looking at it, but then. Um, I guess the next main one that came along was the Woman Trial, which was published also in the Lancet by the same or the same group that did the Crestu study, um, <coughs> which is a controversial study. I mean, it's been promoted as a um, a study that a large study. And I think it had um, I can't remember twenty thousand women. Yeah, Please don't quote right. me on that. It's well, thousands and thousands. It was um, a large study, though. That's all I can remember. Um, Sarah's looking it up for me. <laughs> I should have looked it up. It's been a while, though. It's been six years. Um, it was, and it has been promoted by the um, investigators as a positive study showing that there was decreased, you can be careful how I phrase this, decreased deaths due to bleeding. And that is true, I think. They did find that there were less, um, in the intervention arm, there were less deaths from major hemorrhage. Mm. But in fact, the overall mortality there was not statistically significant in either arm. So if you're being a evidence-based medicine um, <coughs> aficionado and uh, analysing the study appropriately, that you could say, well, actually, it didn't, you know, it didn't, didn't show a difference in mortality. Yeah. So a bit of a grey zone because we obviously um, we want to avoid bleeding due to death and we do know that the mechanism of tranexamic acid being... <coughs> an antifibrinolytic is that it probably de- probably will decrease bleeding and, and coagulopathy, or certainly coagulopathy due to hyperfibrinolysis. So there's some reason there's some good reason to think that it would be a useful thing. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't completely straightforward like in the crash two study, no. which did show you know. So in uh, the yeah in the woman trial they had um. 20,060 20, women. Okay, I've got the number right. Yeah. I just, I just blacked it out of my head and yeah. I was thinking, God, I can't remember. 60 women right. off. <laughs> <laughs> okay, pretty good. <laughs> pretty good. Uh, so they found a, a significant reduction in death due to bleeding in women given the TXO, so 1.5% versus 1.9% in the placebo yep. group. And the relative, the, the risk ratio rather was 0.81 and the 95% confidence interval 0.65 to 1. Yes, okay. And that's significant. <coughs> so that's death due to bleeding. But actually mm. I think the study when it was, you know, the primary outcome is all-cause mortality because that is yeah. what the CRASH-2 study was, you know, and you're, and you're, you're taking 20,000 women who are, who are having a PPH. Yeah. Um, what you really care about is do you have less deaths? Yeah. And most of the, so the other p- points in that were obviously that the huge majority of women in that tr- um, trial were recruited from developing countries, not um, high yeah. high income medical um, um, health services like Australia and the UK. So um, how how can we generalise the results? Have also been um, difficult to know. Mm. Anyway, this, so that's the background, and so I have noticed that in over my career anyway. When I started, I don't think anyone gave tranexamic acid. When I remember when I was junior registrar, it wasn't a thing. Uh, now I notice that pretty much, and certainly in another institution I work at occasionally, it, just about every single caesarean, uh, the obstetric team seem to be asking me to give tranexamic acid. And I'm a bit conflicted because, um, we'll t- and we'll talk about some of the results of this study, 
um, that we're about to present because um, I'm a bit conflicted as to whether that is actually of benefit to the patients. <coughs> mm. Yeah. Right, so this study, and I'll leave an article, uh, a link to it on the, um, on the web page, is entitled Tranexamic Acid to Prevent Obstetrical Hemorrhage After Caesarean Delivery. And it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. I've, I've heard of that one, so it's mm, not, yeah. it's not Legitimate. too obscure. Yeah. <laughs> in April this year. Um, and so it was basically 11,000 women were uh, from across 31 hospitals in the United States, so that's good. So that's pretty mm. generalizable to us. I think it's pretty similar um, health systems and um, uh, well, it's a little bit different, I guess, in the US, but similar sort of socioeconomic sort of um, uh, level of healthcare, um, pretty similar to what we do. And then... Um, in, of interest, 50% of them were elective caesareans and 50% were emergency caesareans. So that's I think that's important because I think elective mm. caesareans are lower risk than emergency ones. Yeah. And the intervention was one gram of tranexamic acid in 50 mils um, delivered by infusion over 10 minutes. So that's nice and slow. I know yeah. that sometimes I give it, well I used to, I give it a lot slower now actually because I know that can cause nausea and we might talk about that later. But... <coughs> So 50 mils over 10 minutes is a good, nice, slow way of giving it. Um, so the key point of this study is it's prophylactic. So this is not this is just someone having a caesarean. It's not someone who's bleeding. And so, so the aim of this study is not to see that in, uh, whether or not someone who is having a PPH, you know, whether we make their PPH better. It's to see whether we can prevent people from having a PPH. Mm-hmm. So that might seem like a minor point, but actually I think it's a really important point. <coughs> Yeah, I mean, that's the first question, isn't it? What's yeah. your, one of the first questions, what's your target population? What are you trying to look at? Yeah, yeah. so I think, so, you know, in our everyday life, you know, those of us who do um, obstetric anesthesia, you know, we look after lots of people having caesareans, and some of them have a PPH, but not, yeah, not all of them, obviously. So. No, you'd be doing a bad job <coughs> for all your so patients. So when you're giving a drug to a, woman, to a patient group for prophylaxis, you're giving it to everyone, so you have the... the I think the the bar for it, this drug uh, is useful uh, is a bit higher, you know, uh, yeah. than for um, uh, for someone who's having a PPH. Mm-hmm. So the primary outcome that they wanted to look at was maternal death or transfusion before discharge or at seven days, <coughs> which seems pretty reasonable. Mm. Um, uh, and then the secondary outcomes were a whole host of things that most people would expect, like their estimated blood loss, the interventions that are in for bleeding, which include things like back res and hysterectomies, etc. Um, the change in hemoglobin, you know, for those um, obviously have hemoglobin level measured, mm-hmm. antepartum and postpartum, infections, thromboembolic events and other adverse events. Um, so the primary outcome, maternal death or transfusion. So there was only one death uh, in the study. So one one maternal death out of 11,000 people having a caesarean is pretty low. Pretty good. Yeah. That makes me wonder, <laughs> wonder whether there was a bit of bias, uh, selection bias, I don't know, but um, that seems really low. Yeah. It is a um, developed country, um, and 50% of them were elective. Yeah. But, um, and I but, but I mean, um, just on a side note on that note, there was the total population of the um, trial was 84,062 patients and from that about half um, were ineligible for it and then another yep. quarter refused to take part. Okay. So really there's only from 84,062 we've gone down to 11,000. So yep. there okay. is also selection bias in there yeah. too. So, and so interestingly the, emer- the ones who were enrolled in the emergency caesarean arm were recruited so they 
it wasn't like there was a waiver of consent or something like that where, where a hospital can just run a waiver mm. they, they were recruited at the antenatal clinics so obviously um, patients um, said whether or not they'd be willing to go on the study and then obviously if they had to have an emergency it was already mm. um, defined but, but possibly people who had high risk things sort of elected not to go yeah. into that study so that might explain some of it and that's reasonable, I think. If, like you were saying before, if you're trying to find out whether this is helpful in a low risk population, then yeah, that's you know. right. And I know for myself, you know, I think um, high risk high risk patients having pacreta uh, surgery or yeah. things like that, I'd probably be giving them tranexamic acid. And I don't know if I would want them to go on a study yeah. where they may or may not get it. Yeah. So that probably explains that. Yeah. Anyway, so there was no difference basically. So there was no difference in death, obviously, because only one. But um, there was no difference in transfusion before discharge at seven days either. Um, so, and then when they looked at the secondary outcomes, um, there wasn't really any difference there either. There was one, one thing that all possibly um, reached significance, and that was something to do with infections. Is that right? Yeah, I can't remember the exact numbers, but but the, my take on that is it was pretty close to not being significant and when you're fishing around and looking at seven or eight different outcomes then um, by chance you, you, could, you could get one of them yeah, being slightly different but it's still probably worth keeping an eye on because theoretically there might be a reason why but were they less likely or more likely to get infections more, so more likely to get an infection if they had TXA yeah so there is there is some possible biological mm. um, plausibility to that because you know you imagine that um, uh Bacteria uh, might get, um, you know, try and hide from the immune system inside um, mm. blood clots or tish, you know, tissue and things, and, and perhaps plasminogen is helpful at allowing the immu- our immune cells to get to get to them. So that's possible. Yeah, you know, it's probably more likely to be a statistical thing there. But it's interesting. Um, <coughs> this goes to show why you shouldn't be looking. Like, if you looked at this study from the get go, you wouldn't think post-op infection was something necessarily that's relevant to it. And as we were saying before, before this podcast, before we started recording, if you have a p-value, if you're saying um, a p-value of less than 0.05 is significant, that means that at five percent or less, at less than five percent of the time, this result that you found might be spurious. So, That's if you right. repeated this, um, yeah. This so if we look at seven yeah. or eight things, yeah, you're probably going to find one that's yeah. got a p-value that's slightly. I'm just going having, having a quick look through to see what the um, actual numbers were now that I'm. I feel like I haven't done enough research. Well, <laughs> I haven't done my homework for this <laughs> podcast. Bad ready People are listening yeah. going, Jesus. <laughs> oh, he's still in holiday mode. Um, here we go. Where is it? Oh, it'll be on this table here. So, um, so interesting. While I'm, while I'm searching oh, oh, for I can, that, I can the, interesting, yeah. the nausea, there was no difference in nausea. Yeah, probably because um, it was given over such a long period of time. Because it was given, I think that's because it was given over ten minutes. Um, yeah. so the other things that you worry about include seizures. So we do know that um, tranexamic acid it binds to the lysine uh, binding site on um, plasminogen, mm-hmm. but it also binds to um, the lysine binding site on um, is it um, glycine and GABA? Yeah, uh, can't say I know. Um, uh, receptors in the brain, so it can cause seizures. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to do a podcast another podcast um, watch this space on tr- um, on the glycine receptor intrathecal toxicity of tranexamic acid yeah. that's, that's to come but we're not going to talk about that today um, and then we'll, we'll we'll do our homework and we'll talk about how, <laughs> how, that, how it causes neurotoxicity we will but it is a neuro, very neurotoxic it is product. yeah, yeah so, it is. but having said that one gram uh, intravenously is not thought to be um, an unsafe yeah. dose and there was no evidence for it in seizures or anything like that mm-hmm. in the study 
And that's been studied for a while. I can't find the infection. I'll see if I can find it. Postpartum infectious complications. Oh, here we go. Um, yes, endometritis, um, slightly higher. Relative risk, 1.27. But the the confidence interval for that was, was not significant. And in fact, all three different types of infections only became... Yeah, it was right on the edge of being um, significant. So the rel- the the confidence interval was 1.02 to 1.61. So obviously 1.02 is only just above um, one, and one yeah. being no difference. Yeah. So my take on that is that that's um, probably a statistical anomaly. Yeah. And just briefly, so that means that we think that if that if if there's that range, that means that if we repeat the study 100 times, 95 of those 100 times, it will, re- it will sit between that range, so between yeah. 1.02 and 1.6, whatever that number was you just said. So, I feel like we're um, not overcomplicating this now. So what does it mean? Um, I think in the big scheme of things, but basically what this says is that there's no real support for the use of tranexamic acid routinely it's, uh, during caesarean sections, mm-hmm. and that um, we should only really be using it during PPH. Yeah. Um, reassuringly, that um, giving one gram over 50 in 50 mils over 10 minutes doesn't appear to have any s- strong... Um, safety concerns apart from that one sort of statistical blip we were talking about with infections uh, mm. but, but the things that we do know about like thrombosis and um, uh, seizures and neurotoxicity don't appear to have been an issue um, but I feel that we probably shouldn't really be routinely using it what do you yeah, think? I agree um, <coughs> definitely I was here as a, in, at our institution as a junior registrar about two three years ago and now that I'm here as a senior, the amount of times I'm now giving TXA is many, many more times more. So nowadays I reckon I'm giving TXA about 70 to 80% of caesareans, whereas before it was maybe 2 really? or 3 in 10. Really? That's a hell of a lot. That's, that's yeah, I give a lot. Yeah. I think, so, yeah. Um, so anyway, and so, the, um, so the, the other study that was done in this area was the TRAP2 study, um, uh, which was published in 2021, and that was 4,500 women approximately in France. Uh, I haven't got that paper in front of me so I'm not going to go into as much detail but what I do remember is that that did show like a 100 mil difference uh, in blood estimated blood loss in favour of the tranexamic mm-hmm. acid group but no difference in any sort of patient-centred outcomes like need for transfusion or any other things yeah. um, but there was an increase in vomiting uh, but they were giving one mm-hmm. gram over 30 to 60 seconds that's very fast so yeah. that's uh, a takeaway point so that's the background sort of um, putting uh, the results of the study in amongst all the other evidence in clinical practice uh, as, as it stands at the moment. So, And then the, the, the other thing which is coming up, which I guess we'll, we will delve into when we get time to do another um, podcast, is this um, serious issue of very rare events where tranexamic acid accidentally gets given uraxially, which mm-hmm. well, mainly spinally, um, but I'm not sure we would do a little bit of a literature review and see if anyone's mm-hmm. ever given it down epidural. So that, that <coughs> spinal... Um, uh, injection is when is in jurisdictions around the world where um, the ampule, the tranexamic acid ampule looks similar to bupivacaine and it's been mm-hmm. accidentally re, you know, restocked with the wrong ampule. Um, but we won't go into that in any detail. But that is another reason to be a bit cautious about the way we throw tranexamic acid around and even having it on our drug trolleys and yeah, yeah. in theatre. That always, you know, even though these things only happen once. <coughs> Uh, one in you know, ten thousand, fifty thousand. Who knows? One still once, a lot. once is enough if the person yeah. dies, which is um, yeah. what happens sometimes. Yeah. Okay. 
any other final comments? No, I think that's good. I think we just have to talk to our obstetric colleagues and um, keep yeah, open lines of communication. Yeah, so maybe we need to um, pass on this, you know, uh, information. Yeah, 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 I think so. What did the buffalo say when his son left for school? What's that? Bye, son. <laughs> that's not quite you can't see this, but I'm shaking my head. <laughs> uh, I, ch- I tried to sue an airline company that lost my luggage. <laughs> my lawyer said I had no case. <laughs> I also peaked too. Neither, I just want to say that neither of us told each other that we were preparing jokes for this one. No. <laughs> it was okay. a happy surprise. <laughs> All right. Um, thanks, Seb. We're going to let you back together. Yeah. Thanks, Roger. Cheers. go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandguinecorrectcare.org where there will be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you just listened to. See you again next time. The Opsandguine Quick Care Podcast would like to acknowledge the Wadjuk people as the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced. We recognise their continued connection to the land and waters of this beautiful place. We pay our respects to elders in past and present and extend that respect to all First Nations people.